Вот бадавы гости еда наши. Welcome to Bread and Salt, a show about my Russian grandmother and my quest to find out about her life and the world that she came from. I am your host, Maria Schumann. I'm a singer, a folklorist, and a farmer from the beautiful Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, where together with my husband, we grow organic apples and raise sheep. And um, today I have a little cold, so please bear with me on this. Last month, I introduced you to my grandmother, Maria Ivanovna Dikereva-Scott, also known as Masha to most or as Babushka to us, her grandchildren. Babushka just means grandmother in Russian. My grandmother's early childhood reads like a Laura Ingalls Wilder story, um, like a little house in the big woods, but in Russia. And this is kind of how I envision the story going. Once a long time ago, in a little log cabin and a little village in the middle of Russia, there lived a little girl named Masha. Masha's parents were peasants, and they grew all of their own food. And mother even grew the flax and spun it and wove it into clothes for the family. Far away in the big cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg, a revolution had happened and huge changes were taking place. But in the little village of Lykova Hrapovitskaya, those events were scarcely even noticed, and it was years before big changes came to the village. Masha lived in this little log cabin with her mother and father, her brothers, Vasya and Sasha, and her sisters, Tanya, Anya, and Shura. One sister, Pereskeva, Masha did not even remember. Pereskeva had died of a knee infection when she was just three years old. There were no doctors in the village who could help her. Tanya was the oldest in the family, and she was much older than Masha. She was really a grown-up. And she was also the village school teacher. Tanya worked very hard earning money for the family and sewing all of their clothes. She was strict. Masha admired Tanya, but she was also a little afraid of her. Anya came next. Anya was eight years older than Masha. She was warm and loving. She took care of all of the younger children. One time, Anya went away to visit their babushka, their grandmother, in a nearby village. 
Her Masha missed her so much that she cried the whole night through and didn't sleep a wink. Shura, next in line, was like a twin sister to Masha. She was just a year and a half older than Masha. Shura and Masha worked together, played together, did everything, and went everywhere together. They were best friends. Sasha and Vasya, the brothers, um, were teenagers, and they just don't stick out for me in the same way that the, the sisters do. Because my grandmother, she talked about her sisters all the time, and, and they had these really clear personalities in my mind I could keep them apart from each other, but the brothers, not so much. And I think one possibility, I know one of them died after the war, World War II, and maybe maybe it was hard for her to talk about them. Maybe it still made her sad, or I don't know. Maybe she just spent a lot more time with her sisters. In any case, um, they did love to go out mushrooming, with, um, and they would take Masha and Shura with them. And one of the brothers, I think it was Sasha, was very handsome, and all the girls in the village admired him. Masha's father, Ivan Kalinich, was known by everyone in the surrounding villages. He was tall and handsome. People called him Izumina, which means raisin, or Vanyushka, which is just an endearing way of saying Ivan. On holidays, he would put on his best clothes, trim his big beard and mustache, and go visiting. He loved to tell stories, and he loved singing and dancing. He also worked very, very hard. Masha's mother, Yekaterina, also worked very hard. She had no time for visiting. Every morning she would get up very early before everybody else and prepare food. Then she would go work in the fields with the others. She was strict and she taught Masha and her sisters many things, how to spin, how to crochet, how to weave linen, how to sew, how to knit, how to embroider. One morning when Masha woke up, she saw her mother standing by the stove cooking breakfast. Next to her, in a cradle, was a newborn baby. You have another sister, mother said. This was baby Katya. At night, mother had given birth in the cabin, and no one had heard. All the children were born at home without even a midwife.
The story of Katya's birth was one of those family stories that gets told a lot. And it was repeated so much that when I had my first child, I really expected I would just have a child and wake up the next morning and make breakfast and continue life as, as normal instead of having an incredibly long and grueling labor in a hospital and, and not really being up for much for like weeks. Um, in any case, uh, I grew up with the impression that my prababushka, my great-grandmother, was an extraordinarily tough woman. And I'm sure that she was, but have you ever had that experience where you think that there's something about that your family does and you feel like it's just really exceptional and, and it's just about your family and then you realize that it's actually a cultural phenomenon? Well, that's kind of the way it is with this childbirth story. So as I've researched more, I, I've read a lot that in Russian peasant culture, pregnancy and childbirth were considered dangerous, and thus they were kept as secret as possible. Pregnant women were considered to be inhabiting a liminal space between the spiritual and the physical worlds, between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And thus they were extra vulnerable to the evil eye and to other harmful spirits. Evil forces could be set into motion by envious neighbors or even just accidentally. And that's why it was best to keep the pregnancy and birth a secret. Not just my great-grandmother, but really many, many Russian peasant women would give birth alone because the more people who knew about the birth, the more likely that it would be that evil could be brought to the birth and evil could cause pain to the woman in labor or could harm the child or the mother. And according to one article I read by an anthropologist, most Russian peasant women actually didn't have midwives with them. And they would usually give birth in a barn or an outer building so as not to wake up the whole family. And they would only call a midwife if there was a problem with the birth. And now I will play for you Wild Bull from Belarus, sung here by the ensemble Volya from their album Forest Tweets. <laughs> Thank you. 
my great-grandmother, after Katya was born, she may have cut baby Katya's umbilical cord with a spindle to encourage her to become a good spinner and a good head of a household. In Eastern Slavic folklore, the thread of the spindle and the thread of the umbilical cord are also spiritually connected. Katya was probably swaddled tightly in cloth, and her cradle could have been made by my great-grandfather, or it might have been made by a master craftsman. Because the cradle was considered very important for the baby and really worth investing in getting someone who really knew what they were doing to make the cradle. It was important what materials the cradle was made out of, probably pine bark or linden bark, but definitely not aspen, which was considered unlucky and might bring harm to the child. The cradle would hang in the back of the peasant hut, and the job of rocking the cradle would be for the girls who were, you know, like my grandmother's age, four, five, six years old. Um, That would be my grandmother and Shura. The cradle would be decorated at the head with a carving of the sun and at the foot with a carving of a moon and stars because it was considered to be an entire, like an entire little universe for the baby. Handmade toys might have hung above the baby, such as an inflated bowl bladder with dried peas in it as a rattle, or maybe a painted wooden spoon or colorful fabrics. And of course, inside the cradle would also be a cross and an icon to help protect the baby. And the whole cradle would be carved and painted and covered with beautiful fabric. And there might have been a log put in the cradle next to baby Katya. And that log would help baby Katya to sleep like a log. But it was also there to kind of trick any evil spirits that might be lurking around, wanting to cause harm to the baby. And the hope was that if they did come around, they would accidentally put their jinx on the log instead of on the baby. And this next song is sung by the Penny Whistlers. Душа. А кто не взял 
My grandmother wrote her memoir in the 1980s when she herself was in her early 80s. And she did it with the help of my Aunt Elena, my mother's younger sister. So my Aunt Elena was a professional writer and she um, helped some other people. She made a business of writing, helping people write their memoirs. She helped a few other people as well. And I just want to take a moment to thank her for doing this because what a gift it is to have these memoirs. They are so full of stories and anecdotes and little tidbits of information and descriptions of people and places and tools. And they're just really incredible. The only thing I wish is that they were twice as long. But my sister has been um, doing some cleaning up in my parents' house, in particular one basement room that nobody's touched for years. And she's come across these boxes of my grandmother's and my grandfather's papers. One of the papers she came across recently is this envelope with a little addendum to the memoirs. And one page is like a description of tools like a really, really detailed description of some of the farm tools that her family used when she was a child, when my grandmother was a child. And even with a little picture that my grandmother had made, I think it's of like a flail, which was used for processing the grains. And in another little picture she made, there's a picture of her village, And she's made a diagram of the village with all the streets and the church and the birch trees and the houses and with the names of all of the people who lived in the village. And I just love it. And so here it is. Here we have on the northern side, we have the houses of the families, the Govalovs, the Rogovs, the Leonovs, the Smorodins, the Stepanovs, and the Dikvis. And on the other side of the street are the Rogovs, the Tikhmorovs, Fyodor Kosmorkov, the Sokolovs, and the Dikarivs. And then on my grandmother's street, we have their family, and then the Tishkovs, the Konov brothers, Pyotr Kosmokov, the Shmelovs, the Widder. Widow Pielagaya, the Andreas, the Adinos, and the Pogovs. And this song is called O Wieseli Husi, sung by the Polish group Verchowina.
And here is my grandmother's description of her village. Our village. Our village, Lykova Hrapovitskaya, had about 30 houses. A village shaped like an English letter L and situated on a large hill. One street ran from west to east and the other at right angles from north to south. The village grew to the west and to the south, but very slowly. Only one or perhaps two houses were added before I left home at 15. At the south end of the street was a wooden church surrounded by beautiful white birch trees. Near the church was a gate and the road leading to another village, Dubishcha, three miles away. We rarely went that far. In this direction, we would go sometimes to pick different kinds of berries and mushrooms. And in the spring, we would pick flowers, white lilies of the valley, and for some holidays, purple and yellow flowers called Ivan de Maria. There was a big brook there with fast-running, clean, cold, fresh water. We would drink from it and jump from stone to stone to get across. So, four roads led out from our village. To the north, the road to Udomia. To the south, to Dubishcha. To the west, to the fishing village, Bacudino. And to the east, wilderness and Ovsianiki. So Osianiki is the place where my great-grandparents' hayfields were, which I described in the last episode, and it was about nine or ten miles from the village. Oh, and here she goes on. But first, while I remember, I just want to take a moment to apologize in the last episode for saying that they were sickling their fields, because, of course, they were not sickling. They were scything their hayfields. My grandmother, at seven years old, had a little baby scythe to work with. So I had said sickles before because somehow I just always remember my grandmother talking about sickles. I don't remember her talking about scythes. But when I reread her memoir, I realized that the sickling was with the rye and the other grains and that the scything, of course, was for the hayfields. So continuing with her description of her village, in the center of the L at the bottom of the hill was the village well, and nearby the village pond. A little brook ran along the north-south street, and we children would play in that brook near the pond in the early spring And this song is called The Geese Fly, sung by the Pokrovsky Ensemble from their album, Faces of Russia.
what my grandmother writes about work at this time of year. She says, I must add that every year this was an especially happy time for the young people. We would hitch up the horse to the wagon and ride proudly to our strips of land in the fields. We'd unload the manure in heaps around the fields. On our way home, we would love to drive fast all the way. The next job, after putting out the manure in heaps in the fields, was the job of spreading it around. This was also something the young people did. Shura and I at that time would do this work. Then our father would come and plow the fields. And last month, I told the story of haying in my grandmother's family. And not only did I use the wrong word, sickle, instead of scythe, I also kind of emphasized, you know, how hard it was. Because I was imagining that. Imagine being seven seven years old and working all day long. But in my grandmother's memoir, she doesn't really talk about that so much. So I'm going to read her description of hanging now. When we did the haying, my father always began the work first. Before sunrise, he would be beating the scythes to sharpen them for each one of us. My scythe was the smallest because I was the youngest one. He would beat each one of each scythe with, scythe with a hammer. For me and Shura and Alexander, my brother, and my sister Anya, Sometimes he would sharpen the sides on the evening before. Then he or Anya would wake us up with the sunrise and we would begin to cut the grass while it was still covered with dew. It cuts better that way. We worked in a row, father always going first, then Anya, Alexander, Shura, and then I because I was the youngest. Then my father would go back and examine how well we had done. It had to be perfect. 
He would not allow us to leave one blade of grass standing or any seams between the rows. The work had to be even. I was the last, so after I was done, he would come back to me and admire my work. He would say to me, Oh, Mashinka, that was very endearing. You do well. You do so well. You do the best. So often he told me that, that I had done the best. I must have been seven or eight at the time. My scythe was the smallest, very cute. I loved that little scythe. My rake was the smallest too. And so we would cut like this in even rows until the dew on the grass dried. Then we would stop cutting. But before that, my father would send Shura and me to prepare the breakfast. We would eat very fast, tea and bread and maybe a pot of cereal, which we cooked up on an open bonfire. Then, on a sunny day, we would begin to rake the dried grass, which we had cut perhaps two days before. We would rake the hay into long rows between the islands of white birch and ash and evergreen groves. Then we would turn it to dry better. We loved to do this. It was so beautiful. In the afternoon, on a sunny day, sometimes... We did not even stop for lunch. So I don't know if my grandmother's family celebrated summer solstice. She mentions in her memoir that there were three big holidays celebrated in their village. Nikolayev Day in December, which I assume is related to winter solstice and Christmas. Spas on August 6th, which um, these the, there's three spases and they are all harvest holidays, and Nilof Day in June. And while I have information about the Nikolayev Day and the Spas holidays, I've not been able to find out what Nilof Day is or was. So if anybody knows anything about Nilof Day, get in touch. Um, I'm going to keep looking for information about it. And maybe Nilof Day is another name for summer solstice. Or maybe my grandmother's family missed summer solstice celebrations because they were camping out at their hay fields nine miles away from the village in late June. Or maybe she just doesn't mention it because she doesn't talk about everything. You know, she had a lifetime and it was fit into, you know, 150 pages. Um, or maybe it was dying out in their village and summer solstice celebrations weren't such a big deal. I really just don't know. But I know somewhere back there, if her family wasn't celebrating it, then maybe her grandparents were, or her great-grandparents were, or her great-great-grandparents were. And she does mention that 
all the holidays that they did celebrate, they did kind of in the similar way that we celebrate holidays now. With treats made with white flour and maybe even sugar, with cleaning the house and relatives visiting. Something different than what we do now, though, is that the young people in the village would walk through the village singing songs. So here are two summer solstice songs, both sung by the group Volia, based, I believe, in Portland, Oregon, who sang songs from Belarus.
Whenever I think about my grandmother's childhood, I have a hard time not romanticizing it because it sounds so beautiful and like they were such a close family. And um, my grandmother, who wrote her memoirs in her early 80s, she's also clearly romanticizing her childhood, talking about the beauty, not complaining. She talks so much about pride and joy, and she doesn't talk a lot about hard times. Sometimes she mentions them. But also, when she wrote her memoirs in her early 80s, she was a hardcore born-again Christian at that time. And she was part of a born-again Christian group that really believed in wealth and believed that if God loved you, you would be wealthy. And, and that if you were wealthy, it meant that God loved you. So um, I think that she emphasizes in her childhood too things like that her family wasn't really that poor or that they had were friends with some wealthy people or maybe they had like a tiny bit of nobility blood in them. And I, I wonder if that's part of her like belief system at the time in the 1980s that she believed that that wealth was something good, even though um, she also mentions that, that kids would call her and her sisters Baden, which means lady, something like lady, and they would make fun of her. They would say that to make fun of her. And it hurt her to her core at the time because this was in the post-revolutionary days. And being a Baden was not something you would want to be. But so why did they call her Baden? I don't know. Maybe it's because she had held her head up in a certain way, you know? Not because she had noble blood. Anyway, I don't really know where the truth lies. Like, is she having her memori- some of her memories because she wants them to be true? Is she whitewashing her childhood because that's how she wants it to be portrayed to the world at that time, at the end of her life? Or is it really true? So a different perspective on her life was written, and it was written in the 1940s by the author Pearl Buck. And Pearl Buck is most famous for writing about China. She wrote the book The Good Earth, which was... At the time, I think it was published in the 1930s or 40s, and it was a bestseller at the time. And I just looked it up, and it also was a bestseller in 2004 after Oprah Winfrey brought it up on her television show. And it was made into a Hollywood movie and a play. Anyway, Pearl Buck was like this best-selling author, and she was a friend of my grandfather's family and she met my grandmother and in the 1940s and she wrote a book about her she did a bunch of interviews with my grandmother and she wrote a book about her called talk about Russia with Masha Scott and it's probably Pearl Buck's she was extremely prolific writer I forget how many books she wrote but she wrote so many books and 
the one about my grandmother is not a bestseller by any means. It was very so obscure that when I called up the Pearl Buck like archive center, they had never even heard of it. <laughs> then they did when I mentioned it to them. But in any case, she wrote this book and it's this whole other like world um portrayed in that book because it was written in the 1940s when my grandmother was in her 30s. And I will pick up that book in a future episode and look for more clues about my grandmother's childhood. What is she saying that's the same in the 1940s? And what's she saying that's very different? What's she's, how, how was her emphasis different? Um, but that's going to be in a future episode. For now, I'm going to play you a song called Bieli Din, sung here by the Pyotr Valentinovich Ensemble. And the words were written in 1942 by Arseny Tarkovsky. The music is by Alexander Manotskov. Arseny Tarkovsky was the father of the famous filmmaker Tarkovsky. And the translation, or part of the translation of the song is, Beneath the jasmine, a stone marks a buried treasure on the path. My father stands. It's a beautiful, beautiful day. The gray poplar blooms in the milky grass, and behind it, roses climb. I have never been, I have never been, I have never been more happy than I was then. I have never been, I have never been, I have never been more happy than I was then. To return is impossible, and to talk about it forbidden. How it was filled with bliss, that heavenly garden. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Bread and Salt. I made this episode last June as part of my radio show on WGDR, WGDH, Central Vermont Radio. And I'm re-releasing them now as part of my podcast. So the season is a little off. But eventually we'll catch up and the episodes will be season appropriate. I'd like to thank the group Castroma, the folk group Castroma. They're based in the Bay Area in California. And they are the singers of the opening song, Welcome Dear Guests. All of the songs and musicians, you can find out more about them and where to find them in the show notes. And um, to support this show, if you like it, go on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review it. That will help me out a lot. And um, just share it with your friends. So I'm going to leave you with a song here, sung by Valentina and Stepan Nesterovi. And it's a song about a cuckoo in a garden. Как над яром, над ярочком, над крутеньким бережочком. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. 